Alright, this is Ricky. And this is Brendan. And you're listening to A Gentleman's Disagreement. What I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head. Folks of different minds because even though it did not share the pains we share, that American ideal. Friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz. Need an early morning buzz. All right, Brendan, it is January 22nd, 2022. Uh, excited to get back recording. I know some of our plans got a little bit messed up as plans continue to, given the uh, the state of um, the coronavirus. But uh, given that, what are uh, what do we got on tap today? Yeah, I'm not going to air out my uh, grievances to all of the listeners, but you know I have them. Uh, but yes, I'm very excited to be back here finally. Uh, so we had kicked around a, a bunch of things uh, this week in terms of like current event topics. Uh, but ultimately, you came back and you were like, all right, well, last week, the Supreme Court made a decision striking down um, the Biden administration's uh, vaccine mandate for large employers while upholding a smaller mandate for healthcare workers that receive um, Medicare and Medicaid. And let's, what do you think about talking about that? And I was like, all right, I think that would be a really good discussion because I think you and I disagree about that. And then I was thinking about it a little bit more and followed up and I was like, what do you think about me bringing on a guest? And I'm like, sure, bring whoever you want. Uh, so we are joined this week by um, Matthew Kinch, who is a friend of mine from Suffolk Law School, and uh, I know he's someone that has a lot of like, deeply held opinions about this. He's very passionate about this topic, so really excited to, to talk to him about the Supreme Court's decision and vaccine mandates in general. Yeah, let's do it. Well, before we do, Ricky, I know you're always eager to, to get to the guest, but... We can't forget to remind the people that the podcast is brought to you by the hardworking craftsmen over at Cannon Hill Wordworking. They've been building handcrafted high-end custom tables and desks in Boston since 2018. That's Cannon with two N's. You can check them out on Instagram, or you can visit them online at www.cannonhillwood.com. Ricky, whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated, you can buy a handcrafted high-end custom table or desk. <laughs> you know. You know, like that, that choice doesn't mean that you, you shouldn't have nice furniture in your house. And so whatever your decision on the vaccination, whatever your thoughts on mandates, go reach out to the guys over at Cannon Hill. Let them know that we sent you. Sounds good. All right. Now let's get into it. All right. So we are thrilled to welcome on uh, Matthew Kinch, a friend of mine. Uh, just I'll explain a little bit about why he's here. So as we mentioned in the intro, we're going to be talking about the recent Supreme Court decisions to strike down um, President Biden's uh, federal vaccine mandate for private business, large private employers, um, but also to sustain the vaccine mandate for healthcare workers that receive Medicare and Medicaid funds. So we're going to get into that all in a minute. Um, but in terms of why I can't just hear, when Ricky first, like through this out there to me as like a subject that he wanted to talk about. I was like, can I bring on a guest? And uh, Ricky was like, if you want to, like, sure, whatever. And I was like, I have one guy in mind that I would love to talk to about this. I know he's passionate about it. So Kinch, this is why you are here. Welcome to the program. Oh man, thanks for having me. And, and I, you know, let's take a step back. I just, I just want to say that I do admire 
you know, this, this podcast in particular, because um, it's, it's really rare to see right now, just two opposing views, having civil discussion. So like I said, I really admire you two for, for what you do. And I, I think that if more people followed the, the concepts that, that you two do, um, we'd be in such a better place right now. So keep up the good work. Uh, y'all are definitely gaining steam. So just, just keep it up. Um, but again, thanks for having me. Yeah, you know, we're trying. So appreciate the kind words. Um, so a little background on, on Matt. Uh, he graduated from Bryant uh, University. He is maybe the most educated uh, person who <laughs> guess we've had on this podcast already. Let me give a rundown of, of uh, Kitchen's degrees. So when he graduated from Bryant, he got a Bachelor of Arts in Political Science, uh, a Bachelor of Science in Business Administration and Accounting, and a Master of Science in Taxation. And then I know Kinch through Suffolk Law School, where he graduated last year with a JD, an MBA, and a master's in taxation. Unbelievable. Actually, very few times do I get to meet people with, with double my degrees. And I'm on, I think I'm working on three or four myself. <laughs> no, it's good. It's good. His brain uh, is worth a lot of money. <laughs> well, you, you would hope so. <laughs> That doesn't mean it's like, yeah, yeah, I guess. Theoretically. No, no. Right, right. You, you, we, we paid a lot of money collectively to get your brain the education. It, oh, yeah. We'll oh, yeah. Debatable whether it's worth it, I suppose. <laughs> um, all right. So let, let's get into it. Um, just last week on uh, January 13th, uh, the Supreme Court stopped the Biden administration's uh, vaccine or testing requirement that applied to like the nation's largest employers. Uh, the ruling was a uh, 6-3 ruling um, pretty much along ideological lines. So um, it was an unsigned order, but it was um, authored by some combination of Chief Justice Roberts, um, Thomas Alito, Coney Barrett, uh, Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, um, the three uh, more liberal justices on the court, um, Sotomayor, uh, Breyer and Kagan um, issued a, a pretty blistering dissent. And so I'll just briefly give an overview of the reasoning of the Supreme Court in this case. And um, the, the court essentially said that Congress hadn't given OSHA, uh, which is like the Occupational Safety and Health Administrations, the authority to impose such like a broad sweeping mandate um, kind of a, across, across the country. Um, and then in a, a separate decision, and this was a 5-4 decision where the three liberal justices, again, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Breyer, were joined by Chief Justice Roberts and um, Justice Kavanaugh. It allowed the Biden administration's order for healthcare workers who who work at places that receive Medicare and Medicaid funding to require this vaccination or testing requirement. And so uh, it was kind of a split decision, but certainly more of a victory for people who are anti um vaccine mandate because one the the Biden administration's vaccine mandate was like I mentioned like really a broad sweeping mandate that applied to private businesses large employers and affected something like 84 million people in the country so it was it was going to have like a massive effect on businesses and employment and employers and uh, employees like all across all, all across the country the healthcare worker um, vaccine or, or test mandate is much smaller, much more targeted. I think it applies to like 10 million people. Um, so while it was kind of a split, it was definitely more of a victory for those who, who were anti th- this um, mandate. Um, the, 
conservative, the, the majority opinion here emphasized that like OSHA just didn't have the like legal constitutional authority to issue su- such a mandate. The dissent was very much, in my opinion, much more of a, a policy argument, which was saying that due to these unprecedented circumstances, like OSHA needs to have the authority to um, like react to those things. And that the argument is that requiring a vaccine or testing mandate will um, you know, make the country safer and healthier. And that's really the job of the executive branch and that the court was crippling the executive branch's ability to react to this crisis and, and impose um, you know, rules and regulations in order to try to make the country safer and healthier, which the, the dissent argued that the court should not be doing. Essentially that the court was overstepping its role and um, in placing itself in the place of the experts at OSHA who actually know what is best for the employees and employers here in the country. So that, that was kind of like very broad overview of like the, the dissenting sides. Um, President Biden reacted um, that day, obviously, and, and said that like the court can has ruled that like his administration doesn't have the authority to require this measure, but it doesn't stop his you know, ability as a president to advocate for all private businesses, all large employers, even, you know, medium and small employers to require vaccinations and and testing for their, for their employees. So that's kind of a basic overview of of what transpired with this mandate um, in the last week. And uh, let's start with Ricky, um, your thoughts on the Supreme Court's decision here. Yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's one of those things where like the gut reaction when I you know, all the headlines basically say that Supreme Court, you know, nixes the Biden vaccine mandate, essentially, right? So to your credit, Kelly, having like looking at it a little bit deeper and with your summary of, you know, the court really just ruled that OSHA didn't have the authority to put this vaccine mandate in place. It, the requirement was for all businesses with more than 100 employees. And so you know, while you might immediately think of a crowded factory floor where this might obviously make sense, you could also think of uh, a bunch of, uh, you know, 100 plus remote workers who sit in their house by themselves and say, I don't know if that's necessary. So, you know, from that perspective, thinking about it a little deeper, I, th- I think it's okay. And I don't think it's as much of a I mean, it's certainly a blow to how the Biden administration was planning on rolling out this vaccine. They're like, we're going to, you know, wiggle it through OSHA. And we've seen that before, you know, climate policies gone through the EPA instead of where it should go through like Congress. Right. So there is certainly that element of this is going to impede kind of the, the overall attack. But I don't think it really comes out and says that this is you know, wrong and un-American to have this kind of vaccine mandate. In fact, it explicitly says there could be areas or workplaces where you would think that a vaccine mandate might still make sense. And the court's not really ruling on that in particular. I think it was interesting that one of the immediate reactions was that Starbucks came out and was just like, we're throwing, you know, we respect the court's decision. We're throwing out our vaccine mandate. And I didn't really see anywhere in there where the court was like private businesses, you are explicitly now not allowed to have a vaccine mandate because, you know, OSHA is not allowed to require this. Um, So there was a little bit of 
of uh i don't know i think i think for people who support the idea that you can require vaccines for certain you know that there are certain instances where the health benefits outweigh kind of the loss of personal freedom that that vaccine mandate could be a good solution that it I don't know that this particular decision kind of undermines that thinking. I did think one thing that was interesting about the secondary ruling for healthcare workers that the Biden administration was allowed to require those is in the unsigned opinion of the court, they said, after all, ensuring that providers take steps to avoid transmission, transmitting a dangerous virus to other patients is consistent with the fundamental principle, first do no harm. And I think that that's interesting because the court was recognizing that the vaccine mandate is not necessarily like a nanny state. The government is telling you to do something for your own good, but that it is in many ways explicitly because how the virus can be transmitted to other people that you're sort of doing your part in preventing that transmission. So I think it's, I think it's a mixed bag, probably not as bad as, people would think it was on first glance, but Matt, I'm, I'm really interested to hear uh, what, what you think about that. And of course, what I just said. <laughs> so I just want to take a step back again and, and talk about the actual OSHA mandate. Um, because as general counsel of a company, I have to, I had to read through the entire mandate and there was just, for, for me and my interpretation of it, there was just a lot of, a lot of weird things that just did not add up in my head. For example, um, employers weren't responsible. So for the folks that did not want to um, provide their medical documentation to their employer and would, would essentially need to test every week, the employer wasn't responsible for, for paying for those tests. And as you know, there's been such a shortage of tests that you know, some people have to pay like $200 um, per test right now. So that would be pushed to the employee. So, you know, not only from a mandate standpoint, if, if an employee, um, that was subject to this OSHA mandate, they would be paying like 200 bucks, uh, you know, per week to, to, um, to make sure that they're in compliance. Um, so from a practical standpoint, you know, that doesn't, that doesn't really make, make much sense. You know, it, um, it's it just, it would put a financial fiscal harm on the employee. In addition to that, another weird thing would, would be, um, it was, it was an aggregate of a hundred employees. So for example, if, if you had two employees per state with one state being one employee, you, you wouldn't be mandated, um, by, by this OSHA, um, uh, rule. Whereas if you had two employees per state and then in, in the 50th state, you'd have three employees or, or even two employees per state, you'd be mandated. Like there was just a lot of different weird things about this, this OSHA mandate that just, it, it just wasn't practical. Sure. Theoretically, you could, you can make the argument, but from, from a practical implementation standpoint, there was just so many different weird things about it that it, it was going to put a harm on compliance and, and just ensuring that, you know, your company wasn't compliant. So um, it was, it was just weird from the get-go, um, you know, moving, moving into the mandate, um, the, the court ruling itself, 
Um, I, th- I think it was, it was a huge win for, for the folks that um, take the side of, you know, the administrative state is way too big and, you know, checks and balances, you know, from, from the judiciary to the executive branch are still actually um, a thing. And it's still in, in, in good hands Um, because that the, the, so to me, in my opinion, for the executive just to just to pretty much instruct OSHA to come up with this ruling and and implement it throughout the entire country um, like that with without any checks and balances to me I think that would be just an, an overthrow of power like it, it's just a power grab um, from from one branch of the federal government and and to me I was I was really happy because I think the administrative state is is too big and if if essentially, if, if this mandate were to happen, it would need to go through the proper channels. And I don't think that OSHA going through OSHA to mandate such a large, a large mandate, it wasn't, it wasn't through the proper channels, like the decision set. Um, and, and Ricky, you kind of alluded to that point where they didn't necessarily strike it down in its entirety. It, it was more of a, Hey, you know, Congress didn't authorize OSHA to have this type of power. Um, and it didn't leave, it, 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 it enabled there to be a different, different channel. And that channel would, would most likely be through, through Congress, um, you know, granting that authority. Um, but, but yeah, it was, for me, I was, I was really happy with the decision. And, um, as, as general counsel, as I said, I, you know, it was a big relief, um, from, you know, my company's around 170 employees, it was, it was a big relief because there was a lot of additional compliance that, that had to be had for, you know, to implement this policy. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I think you're, you're probably not alone. It's definitely in my mind, what Starbucks seized on is like, all right, this is a headache. I can just put on the courts basically and say the courts say, I can't do this. I don't have to do this anymore. Um, rather than, all right, as a private business, I'm going to like continue to try and enforce this and figure out how we're going to go through and and sort of make this happen. I I think, um, so I I think I'll grant you that. And in addition, sort of the idea that this kind of one size fits all approach coming down, you know, being snuck in from us, you know, a, a pretty unknown piece of government, right? Like not that many people are very familiar with OSHA and, and where uh, and, and kind of where their authority extends to. And, and you can argue certainly that sort of the broader public health space is not what OSHA is intended to kind of uh, have purview over. I, I think that's that's all fine. I want to maybe touch on your your point about Congress, because I think that in an ideal world, this is where we would have gone through. Right. Congress would have taken this up and we'd go through the Senate, but we don't live in an ideal world. We live in our world in which we know that Congress and the Senate don't agree on, on much about anything. And in this particular area, um, time is, you know, really of the essence. Um, so given the reality of trying to get something through our political system, through the proper channels in a way that, that we 
would hope that it would go through how, like does that change at all your view of of what the executive branch tried to do here and kind of maneuver it through an organization that they just have kind of control over in in this case so so i just want to touch touch on one line you just said and you said that time is of the essence if time were really of the essence there wouldn't be this multi-month buildup of i think it was maybe october or september Biden goes on TV and says that we have a plan. Um, just wait for it. Months go by and then the ocean mandate is released. Everyone's reading through it. Everyone's trying to gain sense of what it actually means. But no, it doesn't, it doesn't have to be implemented that day. It's implemented next year. So, so what I'm trying to say is, if time was really of the essence, the fire trucks would be hand to the fire right away to put out the fire. But no, the fire department gets a call and says that, hey, this house is on fire. All right, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll be there in, in a few days or a few months. Well, the fire's already, it's, it's already going to go through society. You know, the point I'm trying to make is if time was really of the essence, why wasn't there a more immediate implementation of the policy? Um, than, than what it was like, there was such a buildup and, you know, four months, five months went by where there was talk about it, but until the day of implementation until, until the day in which that mandate was effective, um, you know, what was, what was, what was the essence of it? I mean, you, you can, do you kind of see what I'm saying here? Like, I mean, I, I, I definitely, I hear you on that. And I think, for those of us who are in, in favor of, of pushing vaccines and sort of requiring people to get them one way or another, it, it definitely, you could say it took too long. Um, I mean, I think, the, again, the practical reality is you can't have a vaccine mandate that's effective on day one of the vaccine mandate being published because then everyone's out of compliance and you've got a problem with that. Um, but I mean... I don't know that there's there was a faster way to do it through the proper channels, I guess, is, is what I was saying. But I, I hear you. And, and I think I think why we're in this scenario to start with is is I take the perspective that um, the government's role in the pandemic ended the moment everyone had access to get the vaccine or not. And. And that's why there's just so much discourse right now, because the government is clearly playing like in a very active role in COVID in, in pushing vaccines. And, um, and it's almost forcing people to take a side when really, I, I would argue that a majority of the country is just over it. Like if you want to get the vaccine, get the vaccine. If you don't want to get the vaccine, then don't get the vaccine. But it's like from from the federal government's point of view, it's it's extremely important that everyone gets vaccinated. And on top of that, from from the media's point of view, um, it's it's something that's constantly talked about. So it's it's always in someone's head. When's the last time you had a conversation with someone where where covid wasn't you know talked about? I, I honestly I can't remember, um, you know, when you're catching up with someone. COVID's always something you talk about. And it's because it's, you know, had such a, 
such a crazy impact on everyone's lives. Like we were in lockdown, like no one knew what was happening, but, but the, the point I'm trying to say is, um, or, or where I'm going with this is, is the fact that I just think the, it personally, I think the federal government needs to cool down with, with pushing all these mandates, pushing all of this, because at the end of the day, the, the way I interpret, you know, our fundamentals as a country, um, you have the choice to do something. Everything's about choice. Everything's about individual choice. And now that everyone has the opportunity to go to CVS, to get the vaccine, to get the booster or not to go to CVS and not to get the booster, that's their own decision. And, and once that decision was uh, provided to everyone in the country, the government has no business to, to continue on with, you know, down the path they're going. That's my own personal opinion. Um, and I don't know how, you know, Brendan or, or Ricky, you want to react to that, but um, it's just, it's strange. Yeah, no, I, I definitely want to want to let Brendan chime in here, but I, I think what you're saying is, is, is certainly an argument that I've, I've heard a lot and, and I'm, and I'm struggling with it. Right. Because I think, you know, to an extent, like we know or we accept that freedom is not limitless like we don't allow you know my freedom to impinge on somebody else's freedom right and so in this particular case i think there's an argument to be made that someone's individual decision not to get vaccinated does have repercussions for other people therefore you can argue that the government actually does have a role here in requiring vaccines. So, you know, how so? Yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I, I was just I was inquiring like how does one one person's individual choice not to get the vaccine affects another person's um you know, uh, wh- how do you phrase it uh another person's um right. like health. Well, well so let me so let's let's backtrack a little because I just I just fundamentally disagree with that. Like if you look at Israel, for example, who a normal vaccine or a vaccinated person is considered there are two primary shots and now two boosters. So, so in order to be fully vaccinated in Israel, you have to have four shots of, of a COVID vaccine. Right. And why is it that one of the most highly vaccinated countries in the world just yesterday reached an all-time high for cases per 100,000. So, so the way I interpret that is, even if you're vaccinated, you can still transmit COVID, okay? So, and I'm not, I'm not arguing that, I'm not arguing that the, the vaccine is, is not safe, not effective. Like, it, there's clear data to, to suggest that if you get the vaccine, the symptoms of COVID are going to be less severe. And the chances of, of dying, especially if you have underlying conditions, it, it, it lowers. Um, how much it lowers, um, I, I can't tell you those figures. But, but what's, what's been suggested over the course of, of when the vaccines came out up until around three months ago is if you get the vaccine, you can't transmit it. Well, that's just not true. We're seeing that you can transmit the disease even though you have the vaccine. So so how is it, why would a vaccinated person be concerned with an unvaccinated person, even though regardless of whether that person has a vaccine or not, they can still transmit the disease. So, so to me, it's, it's, it's an individual. All right. I have the vaccine. 
I'm good versus someone else. All right. I don't have the vaccine. There's a higher risk of getting more severe symptoms and, and whatnot. But the constant between the unvaccinated and the vaccinated, in my opinion, is you can still transmit the disease. Yeah. It's so like I, the data shows that. I, I, I'm not going to fight you on that. I think that's absolutely right. Where I, what I think you're missing though, is that our hospitals don't have limitless capacity. Right. And so when we are looking at sort of patient to, to nurse and patient to health worker ratios go upside down where you have far more patients than you had health workers staffed in those areas. And those patients are predominantly on, or those patients who are suffering from COVID are predominantly unvaccinated people. Um, the ones that are in the hospitals, as you said, vaccines greatly reduce your chance of hospitalization or even death by COVID. Now you're impacting the care of other people who are in those hospitals for other things other than COVID, right? You know, we have tons of heart disease, diabetes, all sorts of issues. Um, in this particular instance, when we have a very uh, uh, readily available, free to everyone method for reducing that chance that you will be in the hospital unvaccinated, potentially taking a bed from somebody else, you know, you are having an impact on society, whether or not you're giving that person COVID because they have a vaccine to me is irrelevant. I think the strain on our healthcare system is something that we're all paying for. It's not free. Uh, it, you know, my tax dollars and my do and dollars that go into the medical system through my insurance payments are all going to cover this at the end of the day. Why should I, as a free American, be impacted by your choice not to get the vaccine if you end up in a hospital and drive up all those hospital bills simply because you were saying, I don't, I don't want to get vaccinated? So I am going to respond to that um, with a, a few different points. Okay. So regarding the unvac, so, so the hospital issue is very interesting because you're seeing a lot of um, hospital uh, workers. They're walking away from their jobs because of the mandate. That's like, that's true. I know, I know, I personally know nurses. I personally know people in hospitals that have left their jobs because they were mandated to get the vaccine. So from, from, from a supply standpoint, um, in hospitals that's shrinking, like they're short staffed, um, the federal, so I'm from Rhode Island, the federal government just came out and said that they're, they're providing, um, federal workers to, to Rhode Island, um, because of shortage of, of workers. And, you know, so, so it's interesting to see the supply side, the supply side of, of hospital, um, workers, uh, decrease. In addition to that, I think one thing that um, I invite you to do more research about, I need to do more research about it as well, but um, regarding unvaccinated people in hospitals, are they going to the hospital um, with COVID or for COVID? And I think that's an important distinction because, you know, say little Johnny, little unvaccinated Johnny goes to the hospital with a broken leg. And, you know, they test them and they find out they have COVID. They're going to report that COVID case to the hospital. He has to stay in the hospital for two days and maybe he's fine. Maybe he's not. And I'm just, obviously I'm cherry picking like an example of, of something that fits my argument, but it happens a lot where people don't even know they have COVID. Um, they're unvaccinated, they go to the hospital for a different reason. And now the hospital is reporting they're a COVID patient. Like, so I mean, regarding like, Definitely go ahead. That, that's inflating the numbers, but the reality is that 
I think it's somewhere between five to eight, per, eight times more likely to be hospitalized for COVID if you're unvaccinated than vaccinated. So, and like, so, and so when you say five to eight times more likely, what is that quantitative number that you're referring to? Because for me, if it's like, all right, you have, you know, you have 10 COVID patients of vaccinated versus 50 unvaccinated COVID patients, like that's five times more likely. But to me, like the number is so small that it, it really doesn't, doesn't make me uh, shift my opinion. You know what I mean? So like as an argument standpoint, wow, five to eight times more likely, like that's really significant. But if the number of, of patients going to hospitals um, for COVID, not with COVID, but for COVID is, is from a quantitative standpoint, so little, then, then like, I, I think that argument is just, it's, it's not as good as, as the, the other arguments I've mentioned of, of, of going back with what I just said. D- does that make sense? Like, like I need to know the actual hard data before you make the argument of five to eight times more likely. Yeah, no, I, I can show you, I can show you the data, data. that comes from a particular study in, in, of the Washington Uni- University of Washington health system in Seattle, but I, I, I'd be happy to show you data that I think supports that what is sort of being readily covered in the media. And you can, you can make your arguments about, about that. Um, Kelly, I've been talking a ton here. Yeah. <laughs> I know you, <laughs> you well, this is no, I mean, this is why I wanted to have Matt on because I thought like, I, I feel like this would be a more like a, um, like kind of pointed debate in between the two of you. So it's, it's happy for, I'm very happy to sit back and listen, I guess, Matt, I want to go back to a point you made earlier. And I largely, as, as I think, you know, agree with you in terms of the federal government's role in society that it's, it's far too big and they should be doing far less, but I want to kind of build off what the like liberal justice's argument was and what I think Ricky was kind of getting at as well being like, look, part of the federal government's, any government's job is to keep their citizens safe. You could argue actually like that's the government's number one job is to keep people safe. Um, right. It's like to, to affect like the safety, the liberty, the pursuit of happiness. It's like right in the declaration, like this is what we say, like that's kind of the job of the government is to keep people safe. And as Ricky said, like, ideally, we would get this done through Congress. And if, and if we can't get it done through Congress, like, my personal belief is like, all right, well, then it can't get done. Like, if, it, if it's not done constitutionally, then it's not done at all. But if you're the federal government, I think, and this is where I think the liberal justices are saying, like, well, what are they supposed to do? If their job is to try to keep people safe and Congress is, like, not doing their job, like, the federal government, are we just supposed to, like, throw our hands up and say, like, all right, we're kind of screwed. And I think Ricky's point of, like, that time is of the essence isn't necessarily that it needs to be done today or tomorrow. But the reality is that there's still thousands of people right now that are hospitalized and, you know, with COVID complications, there are people that are dying. Like we're approaching 1 million deaths here in the United States on that. Like at at some point, like the government needs to try to be doing things to keep people safe. And if we can't do that through Congress, then why shouldn't the executive branch do everything they can to implement measures to keep people safe? So, did you want me to? Yeah. You are, Ricky. <clears throat> um, I think it. I think it just goes back to our our system of governing, right? Like the fact that there are checks and balances. The fact that we don't want one particular branch to have an overbearing 
uh, power grab versus others and, and to make sure that, you know, we're just keeping, we're keeping branches in check. And, and yeah, you know, like we know that Congress is just a deadlock, right? We can't agree on, we can't even agree on what fruit to put out in the lobby. Like it's, yeah. it's that crazy. Right. So like, you know, I do understand the practicality of, of, all right, well, we know Congress is not going to do it, but in, in the executive will, but I don't think that, I don't think that's an issue that, that the, the court needed to answer. They simply just needed to answer whether it was proper or not. And, and in order, and, and if, you know, they don't really, they don't really take notice of the practicality of things. Well, all right, if it's not the executive, then it has to be Congress. That's all they go. They, they're not going to put themselves in, in the crossfire. They're not. But, but I think it's really essential that we do have a fun, functioning branch of government that indicates, well, if it's not from this path, it has to be from this path. And, and I'm glad that they don't consider you know, the practicality of it, but at least they give guidance on how to do it. Yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with that response. And I think I totally agree with the court's decision. I just think it's very frustrating, certainly if you are like more liberal right now, but even just in general, if you're looking for a government to like do things and like function to be like, all right, well, the branch that's supposed to, like the legislative branch, which is supposed to do this stuff, we, everyone knows is not going to do anything. And so then we just all have to throw our hands up and say like, well, things are just not going to get done. Like that's incredibly frustrating. I mean, that could, yeah. And, and Ricky, I'm sure you, you have some comments to this, but the, the last comment I have is it's super frustrating, um, especially when, you know, we send people to con- Congress to to get things done and things clearly don't get done. And it's because there's such a divisive political gridlock right now. Um, but that's the way it is. And, and change it, it. I mean, from change just does not happen quickly. It happens slowly over time. And to be honest, I, I like it better that way. I, I like it better like, that way because it takes time for reflection. It takes time for um, to just make sure you get it right. And yeah, I mean, I, I agree, but I think no the arguments from us on that. Yeah, I mean, the, the downside is that like, all right, well, now we have a million people dead and like change hasn't come and maybe, maybe it'll come in 2022, and, but honestly, more likely not. <laughs> like, but, you know, at the end of the day, you know, heart disease, for example, heart, heart condition, all that stuff. Six, I think, I think last year it killed like 600,000 people. So, you know, correct me on the number if I'm wrong, but there's things that just like, like life's all about calculated risk. Yeah. Right. And, and to control that risk to its entirety, it's just unattainable. It's unattainable. There's going to be pushback. There's going to be noncompliance. And it really goes back to how we want to govern our society. How do, how we want to govern the, the people that live in our society. And, and I, I argue and I interpret this country to, you know, we, we give them all the tools available to make the best decision for themselves. And that's going back to the government's role in the pandemic ended the moment everyone had the option to vaccine, but, but to continue on with, with holding someone's hand and, 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 and get, you know, tell them to get the vaccine, not to get the vaccine. Like, I think that's just going too far at the end of the day, people, need to just be presented with 
all the options and then they have to make a decision for themselves, for their families. And, and like I said, life's all about calculated risk. You can die, knock on wood, but you can die today. You can die tomorrow and car accident, heart disease, all these other things. So why is, why is this any different? And I think that's, that's alluding to um, an argument that the Supreme court made in the, in the majority where it's all about calculated risk. So I, I have maybe two, two trailing questions. One potentially less controversial one. It's definitely going to be more controversial. So we'll start with the more softball. What is your stance on kind of the existing vaccine mandates? You know, we have for kids from zero to 18, or I think like colleges have had vaccine requirements, daycares, preschools, middle schools for a better part of the, like the last three to five decades, I would say. Um, something that we've, we've all had to do. You always had to bring in your like doctor slip that says I got X, Y, Z shot to, to show up for, for middle school today. Um, what, how do you, how do you feel about that? And is it, and I guess more philosophically, is it the way that the current government is going about trying to put these vaccine mandates that are in place? Or is it that the government just at the end of the day has no place in telling you what you can and can't like put in your body? So, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had discussions about that point before, and the way I look at it is the, the vaccines that have been mandated, um, they were for, I mean, they were for way more severe, way more deadly um, diseases. So, um, so I'm going back to, um, was it like chicken pox, for example, where the, the, the death rates were, were, were crazy, right? Like it wasn't just, I'm, I'm not going to say that. So, so from like a survivability standpoint, right? COVID it's in, in most age groups, it's what above 99%, right? Where I don't know the statistics about, you know, chicken pox, for example, or, or all the, all these other deadly diseases, but it was a lot less than 99% survivability rate. So like, and, and to me, the way I interpret it too is, well, Brendan just mentioned that nearly a million people have died um, from, from COVID, right? Um, and, and because of how things so quickly erupted that, you know, we don't actually know of, of the people who unfortunately passed away, we do not know whether they died from or with COVID. That's just the fact. We, we don't know. We don't know. And we also don't know whether those people who, who exactly had what underlying condition, we, we don't know. I don't know. I, I don't know if you do, but um, so, so to kind of land the plane here, uh, Ricky, I think that those, those vaccines were for much more deadly diseases than, than what COVID, COVID is. Um, and that the survival, survivability rate of the other diseases was substantially less than what, what COVID is. So that's the way I see it. Um, I mean, you know, I, I, I've, I, I submitted all my paperwork when, when I went to school and that's the way I interpreted it. Like these are very serious diseases and I'm not saying that COVID isn't serious, but I don't think it's as serious as some of these other diseases. So, I mean, that that's, I, I mean, I think that's a perfectly reasonable argument to make. I, 
I, I guess what I was trying to tease out of there is whether it was sort of a philosophical opposition or, or it really, yeah, you're, you're sort of making a judgment on what the government's response should be in with particular respect to COVID, not like a broader claim to, you know, whether or not the government has authority to do something like this point. Listen, I think my answer would change if, if I looked at the data and I saw that COVID, you have an 80% survivability rate, you know, 60%, like some of these other diseases that wiped out populations by the masses, like that would scare the living hell out of me. And I would probably have been in my room for the past two years, not leaving. Okay. But the fact that the fact of the matter is COVID's survivability rate is extremely high, especially in, in populations of, of our age. Yeah. The only other thing I'd add to that is the effectiveness of those vaccines. Like if we're talking like mumps or TB or something like we know that like those are like incredibly highly effective at preventing you from getting those diseases. Right. And this is just like clearly not true as, as Matt alluded to earlier. And we all know that like you can be vaccinated and boosted and still be getting this disease. And so I think the combination of the fact that COVID isn't dead as certainly as deadly as like these other diseases that we require vaccines for and the fact that those vaccines are much more effective at preventing you from getting those diseases. I think those dual things make COVID different than, like I said, mumps or tuberculosis or something like that. Yeah. I mean, there's certainly, I don't think there's really like a mild form of the, <laughs> of any of, those, of any yeah. of <laughs> I mean, all right. So here's, here's the, maybe the more controversial question. Um, so, you know, on, on heart transplant lists, they'll bump you down in priority if you were a lifetime smoker, right? You just can't get, uh, you can't get on those transplant lists because of decisions that you've made in the past that sort of impact your survivability in the future. Um, you know, I talked about the issues with, uh, COVID hospitalizations potentially just displacing other people because similar decisions to get unvaccinated. I mean, is there a world in which it would be just to sort of deprioritize care of unvaccinated patients over vaccinated ones who are coming in for different diseases and are sort of struggling to get care in that way? Um, I just want to first um, ask you a question about how you, how you feel about that. Um, do you think that should be the case? No. Um, but I can see, I can see an argument for it that if really there's no way to hold people accountable for the decision of not being vaccinated. No, Ricky, I'll make the case for it. Oh, okay. So I, because I believe this kind of, even with when we talked about mandating health insurance, um, for like for Obamacare and such. And I, I think your point earlier of that, like as a society, we all fund hospitals like we our tax dollars our insurance dollars like they all go with we are we are a collective you know as much as we're an individual side like a lot of these programs are somewhat socialized and so like when i was against obamacare because it for again it forced people to do things that they may not want to do and so like i very much can philosophically agree with Kench. but then to your point which i do agree with is like when your decision not to do something starts to negatively affect other people then then I have a problem with it. And so like, are my tax dollars now paying 
thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars for people that don't have health insurance to pay for themselves? Like, is that I'm, I'm funding hospitals now to take care of other people? I think hospitals should have the ability to choose who they who they treat. And I, I would go for like, I would start with insurance. And I think if you wanted to go to other things, like bump people down based on like risks that they chose to take, like you mentioned like heart disease. If, if people have chosen to smoke their whole life, I have no personal problem with that. Go right ahead and do that. But then you shouldn't necessarily like get priority over someone that like just had some bad luck in their life who has lived like a personally like has made other choices health wise. I would argue the same thing for people that are vaccinated or unvaccinated. Like if you have chosen to protect yourself, because we believe that vaccines, like this vaccine protects you. And it seems like data shows that it definitely protects you more than not having been vaccinated. Then yeah, I, I would prioritize, I would give hospitals the ability to prioritize people that have made decisions to protect themselves. I would not force hospitals in general to treat people that have made poor choices. And Ricky, that's, that's consistent with how you view it because you, you made that same argument um, prior to like, you know, why, why would I, why would I have to pay more money for unvaccinated um, people to, you know, utilize the services of the hospital? And so, you know, you mentioned that in a previous argument um, that, that we were talking about. And I was, I was actually going to say, all right, do you feel the same way about someone who maybe is, you know, 350 pounds and, and has heart disease and, you know, treated their, their body poorly with how they consume food, how they consumed, you know, maybe alcohol, stuff like that. So, so is all of that consistent? Like, so is, are you consistent with Brendan's uh, comments there? I, I, I mean, I think philosophically I am okay with creating sort of a, a, a pecking order and not treating everyone across the board as even would I say somebody who is overweight, who has potentially become overweight or, you know, morbidly obese over multiple decades, the same way as somebody who's just deciding not to get a vaccine, which takes 20 minutes and, you know, whatever, would I treat those the same? Probably not. But, you know, I think your argument is, is a fair one and in, in one that you would have to ask in, in sort of applying that rationale across the board for sure. I guess the thing I have is like, why would you apply that standard to just vaccinated and unvaccinated and not apply it across the board Um, in, in the realm of decision-making in the realm of individual choice? Hey, am I going to have an apple or am I going to have a big Mac? You know what I mean? Versus, Hey, am I going to go to CVS and get the shot or Hey, am I going to stay home and not get the shot? Um, I feel like you can't cherry pick, you know, a priority list based on, vaccinated, unvaccinated without applying it to other facets of, of choice driven, uh, scenarios. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think that that is an absolutely sound argument. My counter would be that, yeah, getting a vaccine is much simpler than doing or undoing a lifetime's, you know, these small decisions versus getting vaccinated or, or, or not are to me, I like, I, I see how you're equating them and I think it's fair to do so, but I, I don't think that you can't quite. All right. I think the, the last thing I wanted to mention, and Matt, we appreciate you hanging out for so long. Um, oh, no problem. No problem. Uh, is so Ricky and I both live in Boston. You went to school up here in Boston, um, Boston, just as of last week, started requiring uh, proof of vaccination in order to enter certain facilities like indoor dining bars, um, gyms, th- those sorts of places. Um, they follow a long list of other northern cities, essentially New York, Chicago, um, 
you know, Los Angeles that have required these you know, proofs of vaccination. Um, in addition, they, they you know, here in Boston, whether if you work for like the fire department or you work for the police department, you are also now government worker, you're required to be vaccinated. Those are two different issues. And I think the firefighter police one is kind of what we've already talked about. But uh, Ricky, this is, I want to start with you here because you and I kind of briefly had this argument weeks ago, actually. I, I think my, my, my take on this is that if you are a business and you want to require proof of vaccination, you should absolutely do that. Kudos to you. But you should not be required by you know, Michelle Wu and the Boston you know, City Council to, to do that. And that, that's my issue with it. Where, where do you fall on that? Uh, yeah, I, I, I think, I think that's right. And I, and I, and I feel like I can be consistent with how I view sort of the OSHA agreement or the OSHA sort of ruling in that one size fits all just doesn't like there, there are going to be situations where there's really no need. There's no like medical benefit or something from having a vaccine requirement or requiring a negative test before you show up, um, and in, the, in those places, those businesses should be free to, to not have that. Um, by the same token, I, I think, you know, if, if there's a, re- a reason that a vaccine mandate for your particular business or situation, school, whatever helps, I think you should be free to, to have that as well. Yeah, yeah, of course. I guess this, this might be a dumb question, but I, I like legitimately don't know the reason for it. It's like, do you know why Michelle Wu here in Boston or like these other, you know, cities that have implemented these mandates like what's the point of them aside from like maybe to encourage more people to get vaccinated or like being like all right well now i can't go to bars or can't go to eat so I, i'm gonna get the vaccination like because like i'm like legit this is like not i'm not trying to be like cynical with this question i really just don't know of like we know that whether you're vaccinated or unvaccinated you can get covid right like i could I, like in two hours i'm going to capo and i'm going to show my vaccination card but that doesn't mean that i'm like i'm not going to get covid there you know what i mean and or that i don't have it right now potentially it could be passed to somebody else right uh so i'm just like legitimately because like what's what's the point of them like wh- like what do you think is the point of them what's the, ra- the, the rationale for yeah i mean to me more broadly it's like in general in society you agree to live by a certain set of rules that are set by society in in this case city government state government whatever that having a vaccine requirement like you said is is a step towards increasing the percentage of your population that's that's vaccinated i don't think there's yeah that's it right it's just okay all right that that's fine i mean i, I disagree with that like you said, it's not preventing you from getting it it's not right from getting it and spreading it so what else could it be for Okay. All right. Yeah, that's fine. Can't you have any other thoughts on like the Boston vaccine mandates? Yeah. I mean, for the lack of, for the lack of a better statement, um, you know, Mayor Wu can go pound sand. That's how I feel about (laughs) it. Um, I think it's, I think it's absolutely ridiculous um, because I think the detriments of what this is going to do is, is just surpassing the collective uh, benefits of, of vaccine mandate, pushing everyone to get vaccinated because what you're really doing is you're creating a two tiered society um, to all the folks that are not vaccinated. You're, you were, you're, you're taking, you know, you can laugh with you, but you're, you're taking, you're, you're creating a two tiered society and you're segregating an entire population just because they don't have a characteristic. 
And, you know, to, to Mayor Wu and, and to generally speaking, uh, more left-leaning people where they, they pride themselves on equality and inclusion, they're not, they're not living up to their standards. They're not living up to their standards because the statistics, in my opinion, don't show that if you're vaccinated, you can still pass it to, you know, an unvaccinated person or an unvaccinated, you know, it's just the transmission is going to happen regardless of whether vaccinated or unvaccinated. So it just from a public policy standpoint, it's a huge power grab. Mayor Wu can go pound sand <laughs> and it's, it's really just, it's, it's segregation. It's the definition of segregation. No. And, and to remind you, well, to remind you, to remind you, and I have the quote here, um, segregation is the policy or practice of separating people of different races, classes, or ethnic groups, as in schools, housing, and public or commercial facilities, especially as a form of discrimination. And the, the way that creating a vaccine mandate is discriminate or is segregation is because it fits into that class. It fits into that class definition. And a class is a set of collection, group, or configuration containing members regarding as having certain attributes or traits in common, a kind or category. So from a definition standpoint, Ricky, you can shake your head all you want. No, you, you can. But that fits perfectly into the definition of what segregation is. I would, it I, does. I would totally disagree because the, the idea behind race and class is these are not choices that people are making. These are where they find themselves in their life. Whereas vaccinated or unvaccinated is 100% a choice. You can't choose not to be black and be segregated against. You can choose to be vaccinated and get all of the uh, rights and liberties that, that that affords you. Choice choice has nothing to do with the definition of class. I, I, would, I would disagree. Because, I mean, like I said, a definition of class is a, set, is a set collection group or configuration containing members regarding as having certain attributes or traits in common certain attributes or traits being yeah. things that they cannot choose see the the definition doesn't suggest that um but but hey like to me i think it's a form of segregation i think it's a form of just not being inclusive and it's really it's 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 kind of funny to see um generally speaking, a group of people who pride themselves on that, just totally disregarding an entire face of, of society just because they don't want to, you know, put something in their body. That's, that's, that's what it comes down to. And, and to me, like, Ricky, I think that our opinions really differ on this matter. And I don't think we'd see eye to eye. And there's, you know, there's, there's arguments for both sides. But that's the way I see it. I think Mayor Wu can just go pound sand. And I, I really dislike her for this decision. And I, I dislike every, you know, government on the state level, local level um, that that tries this, this nonsense. And that's and that's why. And this is a part. This is a reason why. All of these all of these northern states have seen a dramatic decrease in population. Everyone. And there's a reason. And so. No, Ricky, I'm, I'm in the lending business. Okay. So I have to track purchases. I have to track refis up here in the Northeast purchases are, are, are refis are, you know, basically the, 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 the industry is 
refinances are going down 40%, purchases are going up 5%. And a reason for that is because so many people are going down south to all of these states that don't have these types of policies and they're purchasing homes by the by the flock. Okay. So you're seeing, you know, from from a policy standpoint, these states are are becoming more decisive with with these with these decisions. And it's just creating a two-tiered society in the states that choose mandates. I mean, I think I, I I'm not entirely sure if that causal relationship holds. I think a lot of people like the warmer warmer weather and the fact that remote work means that you can live in other places. I also know that Boston is still one of the most expensive real estate markets in the country. So is New York City, and that's not changing. And so there's clearly still a lot of demand to live in these cities with these oppressive uh, policies. But I will, I, will not, uh, <laughs> I will not fault you for thinking that Mayor Wu should go pound sand. I have some issues with some other policies that she's got. So I think that's, that's a perfectly fine uh, <laughs> opinion to hold. Yeah, we'll, we'll end on that note of consensus. Um, Matt had a, had a funny uh, story on Instagram, and it was uh, a Paul Revere riding through like Lexington <laughs> and Concord saying, Mayor Wu is coming, Mayor Wu is coming. <laughs> I still hold true to that. I, oh man, he's rolling in his grave right now. Let me uh, tell you, but you know, it's just you know, I I love the city of Boston. I think, you know, from from a historical standpoint, I I admire it, and and it it's to me it serves as a beacon of light for freedom. And and right now, I just don't think they're living up to that ideal. But you know, it's it's clear that Ricky and I see don't see really eye to eye with that, but that's fine. And and Ricky, I respect your respect your opinion. I just, yeah, this I just was a lot of fun. Agree disagree. Yeah, it was, this was, this was phenomenal. It was, I think it was, um, it was just very, it, it was just great, great conversation. So thank you for, for having me. Totally agree. Thank you so much for your time, Matt. Like yeah, this, man. this was terrific. This is honestly exactly why I, I knew you would be perfect for it and, and you absolutely were. So um, yeah, it, it, great to talk to you. I appreciate it. Likewise. Right. We'll see you, man. Okay. We'll see you soon. Bye. So we really appreciate Matt coming on and giving us so much of his time. I thought, that was really a great discussion, really exactly what I had hoped was going to happen is having three people with some similar opinions and some different opinions, you know, talking about that. I think while we maybe disagree philosophically about the role of like mandates kind of in, in general, I, I think there was like a lot of overlap, maybe surprisingly in terms of like the, the Supreme court decision and that we all tended to agree on that, which I thought was, interesting and good i think um like i said there's some philosophical disagreements at the end there that's probably like the sharpest disagreement that we were going to get into in terms of you know matt saying that there's that boston and similar cities are essentially implementing like a two-tiered system based on class and discriminating or segregating certain segments of the population which you definitely disagreed with um i didn't think that conversation was really going anywhere productive so I think ha- happy to cut it there but overall I, I think it's exactly what I hope for is that between three people like intelligent people that can talk about these things there, there are areas that we can agree on and areas that we disagree on um, you know ideally there's more of that conversation I just think the, the vaccine conversation and, and Matt alluded to this and we, we know it as well like it just becomes so polarized and COVID from the beginning unfortunately has been so polarized and so politicized and that's like been super disappointing as a society that we just can't kind of come together collectively to try to 
kind of do things for the good of each other, but also respect that people have different opinions on things and respect people's like freedom. And uh, that's been really frustrating, but it was nice to have a conversation with that hopefully was a little more nuanced than most of the vaccine conversation going on out there. Yeah. yeah uh, really glad to have had Matt on. I think, I mean, we talk about this all the time, but you know, it's, if you, if you, if you believe in a vaccine mandate or if you're vehemently against it, you tend to only talk to people who hold your same opinion. So it's fun. It's, I mean, it's obviously fun. We love, we love these conversations, but it's also just important to poke and prod at your own beliefs because however you feel about this particular situation, I think it was clear from our discussion that, you know, you tend to try and want to compare it to other situations and how, and, and really sort of your understanding of this situation is kind of broadly how you understand either, like you were saying, the function of government or what is, how, you know, how are we supposed to act in this society and how is uh, sort of the rule makers in society, like how do we expect them to act too? Um, which was, which was fun. I think it's, it's, it's interesting when you like, especially when you make that like connection, like, oh, well, you know, what about this? If you agree with this, then how about this? And someone's like, well, I'm not sure that this applies, or I'm not sure these two situations are connected enough to make that conjunction. You're like, oh, I thought that was genius. (laughs) No, it's like, yes. (laughs) No, it's good. It's like just philosophically and intellectually to push yourselves in these situations and like I think all of us try to do is to sit back and like re-examine our thoughts and to see like are are we being consistent across um, like different areas of you know like you can just get like so dug in on a certain issue that you become obstinate and not like not self-critical and yeah so hopefully that I think for me that conversation did that and hopefully for people out there listening it, it helps them do that as well yeah definitely um, you got anything else for me? Uh, not really. I guess before before we go, um, you know, we had been covering a, a couple of ob- obituaries um, recently, and, and there was one that I, I felt like we um, we missed, or, or I certainly missed, or actually didn't really know a ton about. So on January sixth, um, Sidney Poitier passed away, um, and I don't know if you know a ton about him. I didn't until unfortunately until this week, but I learned a little bit. Go ahead. Uh, yes, I know he's the first like black Oscar winner. I uh, like massive. Uh, first of all, just like a wonderful actor and seemed like a wonderful person um, from every like story that I'd heard about him, um, but was a huge trailblazer. And he was the first black actor to win an Oscar. And then the second one was Denzel for training day. Like, I don't even like I you, you might have to give me the year on when City Point A won the Oscar, but I think it was like 20 or 30 years, maybe even more than that, like later. So he was when we talk about like trailblazers, he was out there way like the Vanguard uh, way ahead of everyone else in terms of what he was able to do for like black people in, in like American cinema. Yeah. And I mean, so uh, kudos to you. I think your, your knowledge of his uh, biography was a little bit more extensive than mine before I, I started to read a little bit about him, but in 1958, he was the first black actor to receive a nomination for the best actor. Um, that was for the movie, The Defiant Ones. Um, in 1963, he became the first black actor to win best, uh, to win best actor. Wow. 
And so it was 40 years until the next wow. years until training day in 2002 when Denzel Washington won the next one. And his story is just absolutely incredible. So he's like the son of uh, Bahamanian immigrants. So from the Bahamas grew up, uh, it was basically like getting into trouble in the Bahamas. So his parents like sent him to the U S to live with his, I think it was his brother. Um, and he couldn't read. literally was what I mean like he you know he could kind of get by but was more or less illiterate and decided to like try out for this uh this like black acting troupe in in New York and they first laughed him out of the building and he eventually with like the help and support of some people like learned how to read and decided to be a janitor where this black acting group was like holding their practices and eventually worked his way into the group and then basically became this, uh, I mean, like was the standard bearer for all, for, for many actors kind of black or white in his, in the sixties and seventies. Um, and yeah, was this incredible figure and, you know, tra- trailblazer for sure. I don't think you have a Denzel Washington if you don't have a Sidney Poitier. Right. And that is just unbelievable. And I guess, you know, to look back critically on our heroes or heroes of the age, some people would have said that he didn't do enough, that it was in part, you know, he had more of an opportunity to kind of break doors open for, for more people. And he didn't, um, and he didn't take them. And, and, you know, you can argue on the fairness or, or even more broadly that like Hollywood was like, Oh, look, you know, civil rights and all, we're not racist. We have Sidney Poitier. (laughs) And, and all those things may be true, but I think as an individual, he did so much uh, to kind of advance the, the cause of, uh, of, of black actors in general or actors who just, you know, weren't white in Hollywood as such a rarity. He took on roles that were so very different from the common, co- the common conception or, or white misperception of what black Americans were and he was a police officer. He was, you know, all these different things. Um, and it was, yeah, just, just an incredible, incredible life. Yeah. I've never, unfortunately, I don't think I've ever really seen, he did a lot of like Shakespeare, I think. Um, and I don't think I've ever seen a Sidney Poitier movie. That might not be true. I'm not totally sure, but there's not one that sticks out in my mind. But anyway, what I remember most was when Denzel won for training day. Um, so he gives the speech. And I remember distinctly like him holding up the Oscar and Sydney was in the audience. He was up in a balcony and he's standing there and, and Denzel's all emotional. And he's like, like trying to hold that curious. He's like, Sydney, like, thank you for, for like kind of paving the way for me. And like that, honestly, it's getting chills talking about that. I might go watch that like right after this. Uh, and then a personal story is um, this summer I was on, one of my buddies was getting married, we went to his, his bachelor party up outside of Saratoga, New York. And we rented, like, we did an Airbnb, one of those things. And we stayed at Sidney Poitier's old house. No way. Yeah, it was sick. <laughs> there, were, there were like 12 of us staying there and there was plenty of room for everybody. <laughs> Very cool. Yeah. All right, man. Well, it's been another good one. Until next yeah, time. we should do it again soon, Ricky. <laughs> <laughs> All right, brother. We stay up all night on Garner Avenue. 
Debating all the issues of the day No agenda, not yet Talking heads Running around till we forget where it was We began Some mornings you were away Some morning left your ego bruised But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head folks of different minds because even though we did not share the pains we share on that American ideal friends made over arguments in an early morning buzz need an early morning buzz learn the hard way but to those who would die upon that hill quiet truth is better Somewhere along the line, we seem to have forgotten the values sometimes being wrong. Some mornings you away, some morning let your ego bruise. But what I wouldn't give for the hope I used to find in a case of lion's head and folks of different minds. Though we didn't share opinions, we share an American ideal. Friends made over arguments and an early morning buzz. I need an early morning buzz. There's hope behind the bluster, because though Main Street may not sell, it's full of folks just like you and me. When we have trouble seeing, the human for the politics It's time to find a better way to disagree Some days you win Some days we'll leave your ego through But what I wouldn't give for Hope I used to find And chase the lion's head From folks of different minds Because though we did not share Opinions we share on that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz What I wouldn't give for The hope I used to find In a case of lion's head Folks are different minds Because though we did not Share opinions we share that American ideal Friends made over arguments And an early morning buzz Need an early morning bird